All right, well, shall we crack on and uh, hit record and let's start with the show? Hi, I'm Alan Hill, the nostalgic vagabond. I lived out of a backpack for many years during my 20s and some 30s. I'm less of a nomad these days. In this podcast series, I'm catching up with old friends, wonderful people I've met on the Traveller's Trek. And what better time is there to catch up, reminisce, and see how everyone is getting on in 2020? I hope you enjoy hearing about our journeys as much as we've enjoyed sharing. Today, my guest is Mark Bratt. Mark has had a passion for travel his whole life. In this episode, Mark talks about how he's been able to forge a career in the travel and leisure industry, from managing a hostel in New Zealand with his wife Ruth, to operating Wandering Duck Canal Boat Tours, to setting up his own independent travel agency, Mark Bratt Travel. We also discuss the implications of COVID-19 and travel, both for now and possibly the future. Well, Mark, it's really good to see you, even if it is in cyberspace and not in three dimensions. Yeah, you too. Yeah, it feels like um, a, a long time. So it's nice to, uh, to, to meet back up with, uh, with an old stranger. <laughs> what I wanted to talk about today, Mark, is uh, I kind of wanted to go on a journey with you. Because I remember when we met in 2013, you were running your canal boat tours. I remember when we were barely punting along at about four kilometers per hour, you were talking about how you used to manage hostels abroad earlier on. And now that you've ended up running your own uh, travel agency, I was just wondering if we could take a journey from the very beginning of your indie travel days as an adventurer yourself into working in the travel industry, into taking on tours and running leisure tours and now actually having your own travel agency. So to to kind of go back a little bit, I, I guess I've always wanted to to work for myself, but travel was a bit of a new thing, and um, I, I went away traveling in. Oh, should we go back that far? I'm trying to. Uh, that's. <laughs> I, could, I could go. I could go back a long way when it when it comes to that, but I suppose, yeah. Without talking too much about the start of travel, because I guess we could talk about that journey as a separate thing. But the trouble is, this is also intertwined. Travel is just my whole life, right? But but rather than start the travel journey, um, in terms of working for myself, it sort of started in New Zealand running running the hostel, and that was something that I always wanted to do from from traveling and having the experience from the customer side. And interestingly, when we managed the hostel, which was in Kaikoura in the South Island of New Zealand, when we did that, there were so many people that said, oh, wouldn't it be great to work or run a hostel? And of course, as I did, we all, when we think about things like that, we're thinking about the romantic side of, you know, all we're going to do is chat to people and, and have a few drinks in the evening and that's it. But of course, there's there's two sides to it. But that that was where starting working within within travel and tourism kind of started doing that for a year, getting home trying to set up something similar in Manchester, which is the city that I've spent quite a number of years in and, and now call my home. Obviously from my accent you can tell I'm not a Mancunian, but um Manchester are very much home now. And when that wasn't viable, we decided to set up running these canal boat tours on a seventy foot narrow boat because it was like a more cost effective way of of a similar kind of thing. And I I now have my own travel company which was brought about by wanting to start a family and living on a narrow boat not being very conducive to that. So that's been my pathway between management to, to owning two different but slightly related businesses all within within travel. What year was it that you started uh, running that New Zealand hostel? Uh, New Zealand hostel was all of 2009. Right. So we did it for right. about 12 months and it was just our practice run to see uh, to see if it was something that we wanted to do long term when we got back. And it was perfect, really, because it was none of the respons- financial responsibilities of owning that hostel, but all of the responsibility of, OK, what makes a great hostel and what can we do? Like the owner was just do whatever you, do whatever you need to do. 
how did you find that job? Was it something that was advertised on the internet or was it through friend of a friend or is there some kind of network of uh, hostel managers where you can acquire any postings all over the world? We looked for job adverts and stuff. The, the trouble is we had no qualifications in doing this. I mean, I don't think either of us had even done some free cleaning in a hostel in for, for board. So it was a bit of a crazy thing to go, right, who's going to take us on as managers to run the whole place? So so we tried the job advert thing and that didn't really go our way. So we actually sort of, I guess, reverse engineered it. We looked at all of the best hostels we could see in New Zealand that were that was small. Um, and we emailed them all and said, you know, do, do you need a manager? And eventually one of them came back to us where the father who was a lawyer had bought the building as like an investment for someone who'd, who'd had a payout for an accident, right? So it was just an investment to, to, to help somebody that, that had had this kind of trauma. And the daughter had taken on the hostel to, to manage it. And, and she'd kind of been stuck there, you know, she was sort of duty bound to make this thing work, but didn't really want to do it. And so when we wrote to her with all of this passion for like, we couldn't think of anything better to do with our time. She was like, what have I got to lose? And it worked like the, the numbers were up massively on the previous year and we actually ended up winning an award for best hostel in Australia and New Zealand. Well Obviously, done. you know, it's not something that we were we were going for. I think any anything like that ends up just being a consequence, right? When you when you really care about doing something well, and even though we were getting paid a relatively small amount of money, I guess it just goes to show that if you're doing something that you really care about, then the money and stuff's just a, a separate consequence. Sure, I understand. So, was it specific that you wanted to work in New Zealand? Well, I I had an inkling from my previous big travel days that I really wanted to live in New, in Australia. But that 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 was uh, I mean, I'm sure there are people listening to this podcast that have travelled to Australia as one of their kind of big travel things because it's clearly uh, one of the main to do kind of countries that you put on the list. And I think, again, I had rose-tinted views of the times I spent with mates on nights out or enjoying the beaches of Sydney. I had a VW camper van, a, you know, typical kind of old 70s thing that we drove around the country. And with that view, I was like, wow, Australia's the place to be. I'm going to go and live there. And, and then um, I met Ruth there, but we travelled together much later and Australia definitely wasn't for her and New Zealand was kind of our compromise really like there were lots of things that we both loved about it and we thought we'd give it a try so that was that was the reason we chose New Zealand it was the option of perhaps living there but I think sometimes you've got to try these things to realize that some of the stuff that you've already got is actually what you want you just didn't realize it when it was all you had and after living in New Zealand which I absolutely loved I really loved that year there I missed how connected Britain was to lots of other places and the melting pot of culture, whether that's theatre or food or whatever it is. I just think the diversity for this tiny little island is incredible. And, and so we both decided we wanted to come back. I know exactly what you mean. Being Australian myself, I can empathise with you've experienced both sides and you can see, you know, based on quite a few factors, there's a, a greater richness of variety in, in the UK than you get in an Australia, New Zealand setting. Yeah. You're in New Zealand for a year. I imagine that was the contract. I guess there was a lot element of timing in landing that contract in that particular hostel and you ended up winning an award, which is pretty amazing just for doing a 12 month stint. So well done for that. I was curious if you can articulate what some of the biggest learning curves and uh, experiences you had from a managerial point of view and from running a tourist hostel during that time in New Zealand. Yeah, it's um, it was it was rewarding for all the reasons that you that you think it might be in in terms of the the people that you meet, but in terms of the challenges, I mean, when it's a small hostel, you don't have a big team behind you, and you can get. We did have people that were working for their accommodation, but it's very transient. Those workers essentially they're traveling; they're on holiday. You know, that's this. This isn't a job that they're gonna put their all into they just need to find somewhere to sleep right so they can carry on traveling so 
you have to be careful about how you set your expectations for what you want to get out of those people and be fair to them and allow them to have a good time at the same time. And as they come and go, you spend a lot of time training people. You get a lot of people that aren't so good uh, or who don't care or aren't as passionate about it, which can be frustrating because that's very different to how you are. And then a lot of the times you're just kind of doing all of that kind of legwork yourself as well. So and that can be frustrating. I think if you don't if you don't accept that, I spent a lot of time you know, we did our all our own laundry. We didn't kind of go off and do service washes and stuff. And so there are times when I'm hanging huge sheets up to dry on a line. You know, we we did it the proper old school, you know, better way for the planet, hang the sheets up. When you've hung 20 sheets up to dry and you're thinking, I'm supposed to be the manager. This isn't what I had in mind. You know, that's the reality of it. So, it, you know, it's hard work. And... We even, you know, that was, that was what, uh, 11 years ago, but there was still a mentality of, yeah, of course I can check in whenever I like. Um, and people didn't appreciate that it's, it's one couple living at that place that check each person in. So if you rock up at, at midnight and the next person needs to check out, um, at, at, at 6.30 or 7, um, and you might even get a call in between those two times, it was very much the most 24 hour job you can possibly imagine. You couldn't switch off from it. And, you know, when you've got um, a full hostel of, you know, this is a small hostel, so we're talking about 55 or 60 beds. Okay. When, when you've got 55 people asleep at night under your responsibility, I know that my sleep was never full sleep. You know, I, I was <laughs> I was like, don't they say orcas sleep with kind of one eye closed or something like that? I don't know how true that is. Um, but that's how I felt. I felt like I was constantly a tiny bit alert of the responsibility I had for the people that were sleeping at the hostel. I'm not sure that the average backpacker that walked in and went, wow, it would be cool to work in a hostel, has kind of thought about uh, that level. I mean, there was one night when the fire alarm went off and we literally had went knocking on doors to get everyone out so yeah there's a lot of responsibility how's that prepared you for becoming a father mark <laughs> nice. uh, <laughs> uh, yeah i think <laughs> i think it i think it probably has done it's um that can be quite frustrating when you've got something important that you need to be alert and prepared for um the next day but um coffee is your friend <laughs> <laughs> cheers to that i got one myself so moving on from there, Mark, you you did your year in New Zealand with Ruth running that uh, hostel. When I met you was a few years later when you were running your canal boat tours. Can you elaborate on why canal boat tours, why the particular area you were hosting those tours, and what was the motivation for this particular couple of day getaway on the canal? Yeah, it's. Um, I guess it was a bit of a mix of things, really. Um, firstly, um, buying a huge building to turn into a hostel. We just couldn't work out a way to make that financially viable. And it was just a crazy idea of thinking, well, if we can't afford a building, can we afford a boat? And the idea was to have a static boat and just kind of moor it up somewhere. There's one in Bristol that does the same thing. And then it was just like, well, for what we can afford, we could get a a big 70 foot narrow boat, but it would be crazy to leave that moored up somewhere when the UK's got a network of something like 1200 miles of canals running all over the place. So maybe we should take people away for a couple of days or so at a time. And having, um, you know, Ruth, my wife, uh, was, was born in Manchester, has lived here all her life. And I, and I moved here and slowly developed a, a passion off the back for, I mean, I guess it's similar in, in, in Liverpool, but there are a lot of people really passionate about their city. And there's a lot about the industrial revolution and, um, you know, the, the first computer and splitting the atom and all these things that, that Mancunians are very proud of. And you can't help but get sort of sucked into that. And sure. So you've got the canal network and you've got the industrial revolution. Um, and the, the, the first being able to transport that weight of goods being through the canals. It just made sense that you're in the birthplace of it. Why not kind of show that area off? I'm not geekily into 
you know, the industrial revolution side of it, like it appealed to me that you could be just outside the city and be surrounded by greenery, having a couple of beers on the boat, get a guitar out, eat some nice food. Like that just side of socialising appealed to me just as much. It was just icing on the cake that we can show off the, the, the birthplace of this kind of crazy, amazing network of canals that, that I think people, when you come to Britain, it's probably not something that you immediately, that everyone immediately thinks of, but it's a great way to escape what you think Britain is, is going to look like. Yeah, I remember when I was a boy, I think I was in year six or year seven or something like that in Australia. And typically in the evenings, just before dinner time, they put on a lot of British sitcoms. One of them, if I'm remembering correctly, was called Next of Kin. I don't know if this tunes in with you or anything like that. There was one episode in particular that I watched on that. And it was uh, three grandchildren and the grandparents went on a long boat tour. You know, shenanigans ensued. But I just remember thinking, hmm. I'm going to do that one day. That looks pretty cool. And then I remember a few weeks before I went on the tour with you, I was in a quirky little hostel in Birmingham and saw a flyer. And it was, oh, yeah, Longbird tours, couple of days. Oh, that fits in with my schedule. I just made the phone call straight up and booked it. You're right in saying it's a good combination of history, location, and beautiful scenery all in one and a very leisurely, casual ambiance with a small group of friendly people. So it was a nice experience for me and I'm very grateful for it. Yeah, thank you. I think that that's, that's exactly what it is. Like, And I think that there were some people that came on the boat because they were particularly excited about that industrial revolution stuff. There was one family from Australia that came on the boat because they were trying to understand their... Um, they're, they're doing a bit of genealogy and understanding family ties and found that there were, there were children born in different parts of the country to, to boatman fathers, but they were all inland and they couldn't figure out how that happened. So, you know, there were, there were people came on for all different reasons. What I loved about it is being on the boat was a very confined space and you really got to know people well over just a couple of days. You know, you were, you were, living in each other's pockets. Um, but that was a good way to kind of fast forward that relationship and learn everyone's story. For sure. Do you have any particular guests that stick in your mind of funny things that happened or uh, trials or tribulations or maybe people falling in the canal? Uh, <laughs> we did have the occasional stag or hendu actually and really? yeah i know <laughs> that sounds crazy enough as it is but but fortunately because of the nature of the tours we did tend to get the the more kind of chilled out slightly older crowd of good friends but we did have a a great group of guys that that dressed up to go out to the pub one evening and uh, and the stag it, I mean, it was great that it was the stag because he wasn't pushed in, but he did go in kind of accidentally falling between uh, the towpath and the boat. So that was a good one. Uh, <laughs> uh, and we also had, it was quite interesting. We had um, STA Travel brought on a crowd to to sort of showcase it as part of a campaign with Visit Britain. We had someone from an old Australian big brother and then... Um, this guy who is a, a, a rapper from the States, Astronautilus was his name. Um, and it was quite good getting them because just because they weren't the sort of people that would have picked that experience, but really kind of appreciated it. And I, I, I quite like, I quite like anything that changes people's perceptions or if they can appreciate something that they didn't think that they'd be able to appreciate before. I mean, I think that's a nice thing about travel. Yeah. Are there any parts of that experience that you miss or things that you are glad to be rid of? I definitely don't m miss how it was kind of all encompassing. Like, again, like the hostel, you couldn't switch off for it. And, and I think me and Ruth are perfect characters for just giving ourselves all over to that stuff. But I think now that we've got a family and we've got a house and some of that normality, like I wouldn't change having had those experiences because I think it makes life a bit more colourful to have all these different chapters. But um, I definitely don't miss that. And the fact that I can sort of switch off at night now and enjoy family time is, is great. That particular Longbird tour was obviously a summer seasonal type job. 
what were you having to do in the winter months to just keep the finances ticking over? Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's it, because it kind of, it, it, it paid our way during the season. And then our, our eventual plan, which, which never, we didn't do it for long enough, was to be able to just kind of go off and travel on, on the cheap, you know, for the winter months. But we ended up picking up various jobs. The one that kind of stands out because it lasted a bit longer was we worked at um, the Chill, Chill Factor, Chill Factory. Yeah, okay. which is a which is a snow snow ski slope. Um, and me, I I ski and Ruth was having lessons, but you know the kind of jobs that you can get for a season are very much like it was the sort of call centre work and you know have having a a manager who is ten or fifteen years younger than you and just having to stick by the rules. And when you've had that sort of responsibility, it is a bit of a challenge to go to go back to doing something like that where you're just kind of scripted exactly on what to do but you just have to accept it's a means to an end so after you finished with the longboat tours and now you've come to have your own travel company mark brat travel was this something that you were thinking about doing for a long time or was it something that you, like you said, wanted a job that was going to work alongside having a family hours that you could set and then Monday to Friday, nine to five, and it was going to be more conducive to your lifestyle? Yeah, I remember me and Ruth were sat, sat down having a coffee on holiday in Greece going, so do we have a hostel or do we set up a travel company? It was literally like decided over a coffee on holiday. Brilliant. I kind of just thought about um, the risks, the rewards, and the freedom or lifestyle either one of those might allow us. Because I could have done either with, you know, full-on passion and enthusiasm, and and I'm sure made it work. But we just decided, I mean, I've already touched on kind of how I felt about the the negative sides of those other two businesses that that to have a travel company and and have a team of people and be able to switch off from it at the end of the day I think that was and and also I mean you can succeed or failure fail at either of those but bigger successful travel companies you can be very successful at financially and I've never been one to chase money but I also want to make sure that we're comfortable as a family so that was definitely a consideration. So when did you launch this company? We we started this at the start of 2016 uh, initially as um, I mean if anyone wants to get into the travel industry you can be a bit perplexed that maybe there's there's um, too many barriers to entry and you can't get the licensing or fulfill the regulation but actually there's quite a lot of um, homeworking type system set up with lots of the backup support and the systems and the regulation and the training so so it is possible to set up from home as a, as a travel agent and that's how I started and then it developed a bit more into a full brand and, and more people. Would you say that you attract clientele that are perhaps averse to big chain and big brand travel agents and would rather have a more tailored independent experience. Yeah, sure. I mean, predominantly our customers are couples. They're quite independent minded. They have a bit of money to spend on their holiday and they don't necessarily have loads of time to be searching through. Like the internet's great, but I mean, obviously it gives you a million, a million choices. So, so for, for most people, they just want someone else to, to take that stress away from them. But the, the important thing is to have a level of trust in that person putting it together and feel like they can get inside your head enough to replicate the sort of thing that you would have found yourself. And I guess that's the challenge. And that's the thing that I, I hope that we do well. I imagine you have quite a lengthy conversation, whether that be phone, email, perhaps more virtually these days, trying to figure out the needs and wants of your customers. How much time goes into individual clients for really figuring out and trying to nail what kind of experience they would like? We do. We do have. We've started to use Zoom a bit more, and sometimes we'll we'll go out for a coffee or a beer or something, and we'll we'll probably spend. Um, it might be it might be twenty minutes on a phone call, but it can easily be um, an hour plus talking to somebody because the more time you spend. 
especially when you've got a couple, it's better to have both of those partners there because the way they even answer the questions between themselves tells you a little bit about the different personalities and how each of those two people might want something slightly different or something is a bit more of a priority than the other one. Whereas if you only speak to the person who's kind of going to make the final decision and, and, and maybe pay for it or maybe not, I don't know, but you don't get those kind of little tiny nuances that you do when you, when you meet up face to face with both of them. So we always try to do that. Have a more relaxed general chat about where have they been before? What did they like? What didn't they like? What else do they do with their life? What special interests have they got? Like all of those kind of things and build up a picture so that you feel like you're inside their head when you're looking at even the, the detail of like what hotel or what room type or stuff. Not that we focus much on the, on the hotels, like it's, it's just a necessity, but yeah, get inside their head. How much do you enjoy that part of the job? having conversations and discerning what people want as opposed to the administration. Yeah, I mean, that you know, that is the good bit, isn't it? Like anyone who's who's travelled is about the people that you meet and those conversations and stuff. That's the stuff that I loved about Wandering Duck. That's what I loved about the hostel. And that's what I love about this. I quite enjoy the research part of it, actually, you know, more so than that kind of more admin-y type stuff. I do enjoy researching for people, but that, that bit of it can be frustrating. But I really, people say to me, you know, don't you get jealous that you don't get to go on these trips that you might spend two or three days putting together? But I genuinely don't. I mean, I'm, ex I'm so excited for the people doing it. I'm waiting anxiously when I know that they finish their trip to get the feedback because I, I'm and, and you know sometimes they'll follow us on social media and we can sort of follow back and see stuff on Instagram but I'm genuinely so excited for them to go and experience this thing that that we've created for them. You were saying a lot of your clients are couples. Mm. I was curious if you'd done any honeymoon planning. Yeah, we have. We've, um, we've put some great honeymoons together. The one that really stands to, to mind just because it was a longer one is we worked with, um, an amazing, uh, wedding planner as well. If I can give her a plug, Amulet Events. Her name is Nadia. <laughs> and nice one. she, she's great. And, uh, and we work well together because she's passionate about the wedding planning. I do not want to get involved in wedding planning. We're great at the travel <laughs> and she doesn't want to get involved in the travel bit. So it works well. And we had a, a couple who got married in Italy and did a bit of the Amalfi Coast and then went to a bit of Tuscany and then flew over to Morocco and did a mixture between the cities and luxury desert camps. And then they finished off renting an apartment in Barcelona before flying back there from the States. So it was a real contrast of experiences from, you know, very swanky, beautiful accommodation on the south of Italy to these great riads of Morocco and desert and then finishing an apartment so that it feels like you're you're living in in a great city to finish off with so that was a really nice one to put together and I I like things that are a bit more complex or that aren't aren't at all off the shelf or you didn't even know were possible because that's where the research comes in doesn't it yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's um there's a lot of pieces to the jigsaw, but I guess that makes it fun as well. Was this couple who that went on the honeymoon American, did you say? Yeah, they were. Yeah. So because because Nadia does very interesting destination type weddings, she does a lot in Scandinavia. People want kind of a, a snowy, icy kind of backdrop. So she she appeals to American as well as UK audience. We we don't tend to get American customers, although I feel that there probably is a demand because I think that the travel industry isn't quite as established as it is in the UK. So in terms of complex needs, we can probably cater for it very well. Uh, we just don't really market ourselves over there. But I think she, from what she does, she attracts them. And, and because we work together, that's how it came about. Would you say most of your clients are British and perhaps continental? They're, apart from those couple that we get through her, they're, they're all British. And there is a leaning towards really being 
in and around Manchester, but a growing number in and around London. Because obviously, I mean, 90% plus is from referrals. So geographically, they do tend to create these kind of bubbles that sort of spread outwards. Um, so, and, and Scott, who's my, my co-director, um, you know, he's, he's done a lot of kind of networking events in, in Manchester and knows a lot of people that are our kind of target market. So that, that means that there's a lot around Manchester. Yeah. I mean, the business is only four years old, so it's still growing and growing and its reach will continue expanding with networking, et cetera, won't it? Yeah, very much so. I mean, we were pre coronavirus. It felt like the first year where we were still really gaining some traction and coronavirus has completely just everything just stopped you know the whole world just just shut down and we feel like we are at the end of the beginning if that makes sense you know the yeah. shut the, the total shutdown has stopped and now we're like okay what does the world look like what does travel look like how long is this going to go on for and and so whilst there is a bit more clarity and we're finding our feet and we're learning what this means or how long it might go on for we're you know we're, we're at the start of that journey how have you had to make changes in your business to cope with COVID-19 and the lockdowns globally well I mean from the immediate thing it's just about um going into some form of hibernation we've we had to keep our costs cost to an absolute minimum I, I mean you know I changed I changed the the ink subscription from the printer down to save a fiver a month like we literally went through everything saving every penny to go into hibernation and you know that that's been our savior the fact that we're so small and we can do that and there there are four of us um two of us are furloughed so there's just me and scott working at the moment We've started to look at perhaps increasing a bit more UK product because we think that domestic tourism will will start to build first. And we are looking at doing a bit more in those countries that have opened up first. But ultimately, we just had to cash flow and go, look, if nobody travels till next January or next Easter, what does that look like for us? Because it's better for us to work on business development, not instantly switch to just doing UK stuff, focus on getting ourselves right for when people travel again and just make sure that we can survive that length of time. Because our specialisation is is in complex um, itineraries in, in countries that are you know, maybe they, maybe they're Europe or, or maybe they're further afield, lots in, in Asia or South America or Southern Africa. And it's better that we develop ourselves ready for when that happens again, as long as we can see it through. Yeah. I mean, I guess on another point, this has added an extra layer of complexity because are we allowed to travel? Can we get into the country? Can we get back into the UK afterwards? What does the experience look like away that it didn't before? Is the pool going to be open? Do we have to wear masks? What happens at mealtimes in the restaurant? Are we having to be tested before we go over there? Are we needing to be tested again when when we're over there? Are we going to put put into quarantine? All of these questions are things that we are wrapping our head around. No one has years of experience on this subject because we've never had to deal with it before. So we're we're starting from a level playing field, and we want to gain as 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 much knowledge as quick as possible so that we're the experts in this and so in some ways we're perfectly suited to this because we're small and we're dynamic and we can figure this stuff out and communicate to the four of us that this is what's going on it's a lot easier for us to do that than a a massive company and this stuff's changing day by day and I think it will be it will be harder for someone who is trying to research this on their own at home and not have the backup support of well what if something does change last minute what am I going to do about that how am I you know where do I get this information from so in some ways this has made travel even more complex and even more it's a necessity to to have an expert yeah i imagine one of the greatest challenges would be staying on top of the information that keeps changing day by day like you're saying 
whether you need to wear masks or get tested, it seems, or what borders are open. This seems like the kind of thing that is just constantly going backwards and forwards. Yeah, it is. It is. And it and it's frustrating, but like you just have to go with the tools that you've got. I mean, even on the government's website, we've seen contradictions between what even they're advising or a lack of clarity in does a transit point mean that you visited that country in terms of quarantine, which we found that it does affect that. So yeah, it's, it's a bit of a nightmare and it goes back and forth. And the problem is, I mean, we have been trying to give as much flexibility to our customers as possible, but there's a point where people need to get paid, right? I mean, I'm not talking about us. I'm talking about our suppliers. I'm talking about the, the airlines or the hotels or whatever element of this. We're trying to, we have good relationships with a lot of our suppliers and some people the day before they go, we can say, look, we're going to have to switch this to like next month, next year or whatever. You know, you can't do that in, in every possible case because things have been spent in different parts of that trip. So, you know, we, 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 we're doing our best, but we're in an impossible situation really where, where, you, there's there's a limit to what you can achieve. What's your opinion on these air corridors that the UK government's been setting up? Selfishly, from a travel industry perspective, we want stuff to open up so that we can start booking holidays, right? Because we don't get an income until that customer comes back from their holiday and every supply has been paid. When you have a when you have a trust account like ours, this is about financial protection. You don't, it's not like someone books a holiday and you get some money, right? You, someone books a holiday and then you get money six months later when they've been on that holiday. So we're, we're desperate for people to start traveling again, but that has to be done safely and without compromising the gains that we've made so far. So it is important that we match up the safety levels between like coronavirus cases here and coronavirus cases wherever we're sending people or wherever, wherever we might be sort of otherwise importing coronavirus from. So I think it's probably a good idea to have that kind of system. I wish there was a bit more clarity or understanding about how these decisions are made, because if we understood how the decisions were made, it would help us forecast where the next corridors might become available but it feels like it's changing every five minutes and there's no rhyme or reason it doesn't really add up you can't for example say when Portugal are saying we are desperate for tourists you can't say no to Portugal because there's one flare-up because there's going to be flare-ups in countries coming and going all of the time. So to ban a country doesn't make sense. To say we don't advise going to a city where there's been a flare-up on an area, that to me is much more logical than taking a country off as soon as there's a flare-up in one particular area. And what you have to remember is, of course, we we want coronavirus to, to slowly you know, die down in numbers over time. We want to make sure that people aren't dying unnecessarily. We care about that as much as as anyone else does, but also there are there are livelihoods at, at stake. You know, small hoteliers, drivers in Sri Lanka that have to pay to lease their cars who don't have any tourists at the moment. There are, and, and so all of this affects health and mental well being and all of those kind of things. And we have to take like a holistic approach to to balancing all of this together. Yeah. The uncertainty is being felt by everybody around the world. As a owner and operator of a business, have you got any particular strategies or tips that you could share in terms of coping with uncertainty? It's, it, I suppose it's quite easy to stress about this stuff that you can't control, isn't it? And, I, and I'm not sure that I'm the, the perfect person to advise on it, really. But I think there are, there are certain things to this like sort of going into hibernation and cutting off costs, like forward thinking into like what's the best and worst case scenarios. How can we manage with what we do know? Take what you do know and plan for as much as you can because there's no point stressing about this stuff that you can't control. You, there's, there's nothing that you can do about that and there are certain things that you, you, you can control and can plan for and I guess focus on that. I mean... We we know that we've got a bit of support in the background that if we can't manage a month or whatever, that we'll be okay. So, you know, I can't 
talk for those people who have much bigger struggles and don't have that kind of support network. But we haven't been too stressed because we've been focusing on the fact that people will always travel and at some point things will come right, whether it dies out or there's a vaccine or whatever the answer to this is, travel will come back and we'll be ready for that moment. And that kind of keeps us going and keeps us positive. So for me, it's focusing on that kind of stuff, not on the doom and gloom, which when we're locked down, this doom and gloom and looking at Facebook and, you know, now we've got the extra dimension of the unrest of the Black Lives Matter movement and all that kind of stuff, it can tear you down. So it's important to be passionate about these things. It's important to learn from them. I think if it's getting to you and you're not yourself, then take a step back and just stop looking at it for a while and recharge. Yeah. Mark, I'm going to uh, lighten the mood a bit. Fast five. Five quick fire questions require five quick fire answers. My guests must answer five random questions about travelling without thinking too much. Are you ready for the fast five? Yeah, go for it. Question one, left or right? Right. Question two, solo or partnered? Partnered. Question three, beer or wine? Beer. Question four, heterogeneous or homogenous? Homogenous. Question five, suitcase or backpack? Backpack. Fast five. 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 That's that's for quick thinking and having a slow mindset. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I've got a couple more things to ask you, if that's okay, Mark. Yeah, sure, sure. I was curious with all your experiences and your traveling around the world, and I imagine the people you've encountered. Do you have any stories, the small world or the six degrees of separation or things where you've bumped into somebody in a random place that you've already known or somebody's a friend of a friend or you see an old schoolmate in the middle of the desert or something crazy like that. There was someone that uh, <clears throat> approached us <clears throat> when we were doing Wandering Duck and uh, they'd set up a company called Great British Trips doing inbound tourism for people that want to come to the UK and travel around independently. <clears throat> they found us because they were looking for cool experiences in, in Britain to sell to other people and it wasn't until they... D- delved a bit deeper and arranged to meet up with us that there'd been a customer of ours at the the backpack hostel in Kaikoura so <laughs> so that was Amazing. quite that was quite a nice one I mean there are always these um these things that aren't quite chance that happens when you're traveling along a a set path and it's amazing how big these paths can cover you know we met up with somebody who we'd seen in Buenos Aires um in i think it was somewhere in bolivia right so like the other side of the continent that's not so much by chance really because there are people traveling those massive expanses but that does remind me how small the world is really so it's quite a, a beautiful moment even if it's not quite as as by chance as you might be led to believe Yeah, it seems like there are certain networks, or even I guess you'd call them traveller's trails, where you end up finding the same advertisements for hostels or the same advertisements for tours, or because you're speaking the same language, you're directed to the same websites and you, you find these experiences and then you end up bumping into somebody, let's say in Mexico that you'd seen in Brazil two months later. Absolutely. It's crazy. You can take from that what you will. There, There is a side to that where you're saying, God, I just want to truly get off the beaten track and clearly I haven't achieved that. Or it can be just a great moment to catch up with people because, I mean, I guess with Facebook, people are connecting a lot more and keeping in touch. I, that's changed from when I first went away and people were only really using email. They weren't using the internet quite as much in like 2000. And when you said goodbye to someone, you were literally saying goodbye forever. It was just like, you've been amazing for these last three days. I'm never going to see you again. Have a great life. It's been genuinely really nice to meet you. Um, we don't really have that kind of like, I'm never going to see you again moment. But we do acknowledge that... You're not going to be a lifelong friend. You're just going to be somebody that I met once and had a really fantastic time with. And we might keep on touch a little bit on Facebook. So when you meet someone again a month further down the line unexpectedly, that's a great moment, right? Irrelevant of how it, how it came about. 
for me, I've found that a lot of the traveling choices I've made have come from recommendations from other backpackers and travelers, let's say in a hostel common room or on a bus or, or even just in a pub. And I think when you're passing on information traveler to traveler, the likelihood of hearing the same recommendations and positive thoughts about places will draw you to that place at some point. And that's perhaps when you do encounter old friends from before. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're, I guess most of us are, are after a mix of experiencing the real authentic culture of the place. But there's also a sense of there are these cravings that we have while we're traveling as well. So there are certain types of maybe laid back cafes or cool hostels with a kind of great vibe about them that are very much attached to our kind of Western traveler culture. I think I think that would be fair to say, like our kind of our love of cafe culture or all these kind of bits and pieces that aren't connected with the tra- the, the culture or the, the place that we've gone to. There are traveller culture separate to the local one and we, we crave a mix of both of those and I think they're the things that, that travellers kind of talk about and we end up going to the same kind of places. Indeed. I imagine you've been really, really busy developing your company and growing that over the last few years. And you've obviously had a family as well. So there's quite a lot on your plate. I was wondering if you've done any travel recently with your family or are there any places that you plan to when obviously travel opens up that you'd like to go away with your family and uh, have a little holiday yourself? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a couple of places still on, on on my list I'd really like to get to. So one of them is Cuba. And the other one is is Japan. Probably Japan. I'd like to do a bit of a rail tour with with the family. And in Cuba, I'm just I'm just intrigued, really, and I and I want to do it sooner rather than later. In in terms of having uh, travelled with the family, we we last went away to Miami and the Florida Keys, so that was quite nice. I really wanted to do the drive from Miami down to Key West that goes on those huge long bridges. So that was a good one. The the more sort of culturally interesting was the holiday we did before with with Josie, who is now three, was eighteen months at the time. So it was it was just the three of us, uh, and we went to Sri Lanka. And we had the the common way of seeing Sri Lanka if you've only got a, a couple of weeks rather than longer term travel is to get a car and driver, and and they take you around. So you've got this local with you the whole time who can who can stop when they, you see interesting things, got complete freedom, and and don't have the stresses of buses which which you'll know from travel experience that you can spend a long time waiting for buses when you're traveling um so we did that as a family and that was great because you know Josie we took her car seat from from the UK over there so it was this kind of familiarity when we were in the car you don't have the stress of finding the next place we stayed in lots of different hotels in different parts of the country and there was lots to keep her occupied and we got to go on a bit of an adventure so um that was that was a great family friendly place to do brilliant when you're choosing these destinations do you have specific things to consider about the choice of destination whether that be what kind of food they have there what the architecture is like what kind of history they have landscapes any wildlife or just adventurous vibe um the things that I'm less interested in are probably things like the architecture of a place, those kind of that that kind of stuff. Um, and I dip into the history, but like I only dip into it. To be honest, I really just like variety and and something new to see. And it's quite good to go to to somewhere where I haven't been to the immediate vicinity so that culturally there's a little bit of something different in there. In terms of traveling as a family, I think what's new to me is I'm thinking I am thinking about things like what's the food like? If Josie doesn't like the food, can we get something that she's a bit more familiar with? Because I'd like her to try all that stuff, but I don't want to starve her. So <laughs> so getting that mix right. I'm also thinking about any any <laughs> I'm also thinking about any any risks, you know, where could she have an accident? What's the health like? What are the hospitals like? And that's stuff that we never considered when it's been me or me and Ruth together. It's just like you take what comes and we've done some stuff where I thought, God, if we had an accident here, we were like, you know, a day away from a decent hospital. So now that we're a family, you have certain considerations that you didn't have before. Games change slightly, Mark. 
for sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, finally, I was wondering if you could offer any advice to the listeners, perhaps something that you've learned on your own personal journey or. Uh, yeah, I think, I think it's, it's good to, to, I think as you, as you, um, as you get older and you kind of develop as a person, you go traveling for kind of a bit different reasons. So like when you, when you're in your, your twenties, you go away and it's all kind of surface level and there's a bit of a party attached to it. And it's like, there's a, there's a different focus and it's still a really important and good thing to do because that's your first learning of what the world looks like. And then as you get older and you, you kind of mature a bit and you, you want to delve a little bit deeper and discover a bit more. I think I would tell people to give that second more mature level of travel a go because I think we've got this there's this natural path of kind of getting travel out your system at a relatively young age before the rest of life takes hold and it would be a shame for me to have only experienced it at that first kind of gap year kind of level of travel uh, so I think keep going and I don't think you need six months to see the world I think in two weeks you can go and be absolutely blown away and and it's like a reset button for the rest of your life it puts things in perspective and you've learned something completely sure. new in that valuable holiday time so I guess keep at it because there's other rewards from that Definitely agree. I think uh, there's many different ways you can experience travel. But if you go with an open mind, even from a weekend to one year, you can learn something significant that you can take with you into the rest of your life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely agree. Well, Mark, I've been looking at your website, markbratttravel.com. Are you relaunching it soon? Yeah, we are. Um, the, the, the previous website was one that I designed and, um, and over time we've sort of outgrown it a little bit and there's been some really cool stuff that we've put together that we, that we, we're not showcasing, but I didn't want to carry on with the old format of something that I designed. So we kind of had to start again with it. So we've got a, a, a great web designer, but of course it, we don't, we don't have huge amounts of money to spend. So it's kind of mates rates and, and take our time with it and get it right. Um, and in the meantime, we've just, we've put a video up of this coffee challenge that we did to showcase how we work really. Cause I think that's an important part. It's just someone talking to us about what they like and what they don't like about travel and we come up with a great itinerary for them so it's a snapshot of what we do but we want to create lots of these kind of stories of what we've done in the past in a very kind of visual way but that means a kind of ground hole up massive overhaul of the website so I'm not sure when it's going to be finished we're going to take our time over it but me and Scott are putting itineraries into it at the moment so it's going to be great when it's great when it's there. So it's markbratttravel.com. Stay tuned. Yeah, no, keep keep an eye on it um, and keep in touch with us on like Instagram and, and Facebook as well. We're, we're quite good at posting a bit of inspiration or answering questions and that kind of stuff. And what are your handles, Mark, for Instagram and Facebook? Um, I think they're both just at markbratttravel. Okay. So people can find you quite easily. Yeah, for sure, absolutely. Yeah, if, if and if you if you if you search us or Google us markbratttravel, you'll find all of that. Well, it's been really fun talking with you, Mark. Yeah, you too. Uh, yeah. I hope like we were discussing that things will start to clear up and the world will hopefully sooner rather than later come back to normal and we can get on with traveling like it used to be. Yeah, I, I'm confident. We've either got to, in the medium term, we've got to learn to live with it. In the longer term, we'll find a solution one way or the other. People will still want to travel. We still want to experience uh, different ways of life and that that will carry on. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Thanks for listening to The Nostalgic Vagabond. My guest has been Mark Bratt. There are more episodes in this podcast series where you can hear different tales from other fellow travellers. Check them out anywhere you can grab good podcasts. And big ups to Tom Forfar for creating the soundtrack to the series. Don't forget, your journey is special. Oh, I've been Alan Hill. Until next time.